Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court, counsel. Dylan Martinez on behalf of plaintiff appellants. On November 3rd, 2009, Nicholas Halgeson runs a stop sign and kills Winfield Thompson. Eight years later, November 3rd, 2017, a jury enters a verdict in excess of Nicholas Halgeson's insurance policy. November 3rd, 2022, five more years has passed. 13 years later, we are here today because William Harry misled the court, his clients, and everybody else. Few have been so bold as to appear before the very place where right and wrong is decided. Commit actual fraud, not only on the court, but on all individuals within. This case is important, Your Honors, because William Harry does not deserve to escape liability for his misconduct, allowing him to use as a shield the very fraud that caused the problems that brings us all here today, allowing him the protections of actual attorneys leads to an absurd result. This is one reason why a case-by-case -case analysis makes sense in situations when it comes to the assignment of claims. Counsel, you, you, you agree off the bat that the case-by-case -case analysis is a, is a woeful minority in, of the authority in the United States of America? Yes, Your Honor, I do agree with that. Okay, proceed, Your Honor. To prevent the very underlying causes of fraud from offering later protections, in the briefing to the district court, as well as to this court, other misleading statements were made. For example, the general categorization of the lawyer defendants and attempting to categorize all of plaintiff's claims under a single umbrella of malpractice. This is intentionally designed to further perpetuate the fraud that William Harry committed on the South Dakota State Court. Another reason why a case-by-case -case approach is appropriate for situations such as this is it protects clients and the public. It protects against fly-by-night individuals who expose people, believing courts, and even insurance companies paying indemnity and defense benefits from people who dare to claim they are someone who they are not. Fortunately, this is an unusual, unusual set of circumstances. So whether a non-lawyer can commit malpractice or whether these claims sound instead in fraud does not particularly matter as long as the misbehavior does not go unchecked as it has for over a decade and actually 13 years. Now what we really care about is what the Supreme Court of South Dakota would do, right? Their That's law correct, controls Your Honor. this case. And how do you answer if you read the UNRWA chiropractic case and the Kim H. Industries case? How do you, how do you uh, see any way that they wouldn't adapt, wouldn't adopt a flat rule prohibiting assigning legal malpractice claims? 
Your Honor, I believe they wouldn't adopt a flat rule because of the egregiousness of the conduct in this case. William Harry stood before the state of South Dakota, the court of South Dakota, without a law license to practice within that state. Essentially, he was just a person off the streets as it's seen before the court. And given that, well, go ahead. that is, well, yes, Your Honor. I'm looking at your second amended complaint, and I've looked at it before, and I looked at it again just to make sure. And I see that the first cause of action is one for negligence slash legal malpractice. I see that you've got uh, then other claims for breach of contract, rising out of breach of contract, and you've got a punitive damages claim. I don't see uh, a negligence, I don't see a fraud claim. I don't see a deceit claim. I don't see a fraud claim uh, pled with specificity as is required both under the federal rule of uh, number uh, of, of civil procedure nine and is required by the North uh, by the South Dakota statute on the pleading of fraud and deceit. So how in the world can you be standing here today saying that it's a fraud case, not a legal malpractice case? Because the breach contract cases would all lie, would all lie in um, in legal malpractice because you wouldn't have a contract claim unless there was a contractual relationship between Mr. Harry and somebody else. Your Honor, two parts to that. First, Your Honor, there's substantial claims within that. that well, yeah, but it's got to be pled with specificity, right? I mean, I could get if this was some kind of a kind of a negligence claim that you were asserting that was separate and distinct, and you were saying that somehow that's something different. But then you'd still have to prove a duty that it, that that existed, right? And so at the end of the day, um, you've pled it as a legal malpractice claim. You've pled it as breach of contract. You've pled a claim for punitive damages. And I'd like to know what kind of a claim that actually is because it seems to me it's a damage prayer rather than a claim. Your Honor, there is substantial notice within that complaint. Well, that's not the test. The test is under Rule 9 that it's pled specifically. Your Honor, but it does not say under Rule 9 that it has to have a label of fraud. It could be clear, it's, this could be fixed very easily, Your Honor, kicking it back down to the state court, allowing us to amend the complaint to place the label for the ease of the court. Second, Your Honor, you did bring up a rather interesting point regarding a contract claim and there's a duty. Um, South Dakota has actually requires a strict, they have a strict privity rule when it comes to legal malpractice. However, in the Frisk v. Hogue case, they allowed for an exception to be made. The exception was a third party beneficiary um, in a will can bring a claim against the attorney, or uh, the attorney for legal malpractice. In Arkansas as well, Your Honor, under- As a, as a third party beneficiary seems a little different than someone who's an assinee. In some sense, don't yes. you stand in a different place? No, Your Honor, I don't believe so. Okay, Your why Honor, not? Excuse me, sorry. I said, why not? Well, Your Honor, because as a third-party beneficiary and as this, you're still part of, of you know, some sort of a different contract. As an assinee, you're, you're stepping in the shoes of this assinor or assignor. Your Honor, I did want, would like to particularly point your attention to an Arkansas case which allowed for 
um, a second exception to the strict privity rule. In Arkansas, they allow for a strict privity. The exception is if there's fraudulent misconduct, and that's exactly what we have here. Additionally, Your Honor, I would like you, and I did not put this in my briefing, New Hampshire Insurance Company versus McCann, 429 Massachusetts 202. And you should send us a 20, a Federal Appellate Procedure 28J letter on that. That's a letter after argument where you talk about the case. Correct. Right. right. Look at Federal Rule Appellate Procedure 28J. Thank you, Your Honor. Sure. But you, you can argue it here. Go ahead. But Your you Honor. do send us the information after. In Massachusetts, they did allow for a claim to be brought against, an assignment of a claim to be brought against the attorney. And I particularly would like, Your Honors, to look at that case when addressing your, in your opinions, because that case addresses many of the issues that are found in this case as well. Counsel, I think you still have a problem with the UNRWA case and the Damage Industry case. But one question I have for you on your first page of your, of your brief, you say the district court erroneously concluded that if the legal malpractice claim against Harry and his firm failed due to the lack of assignability, all claims against those parties failed. I don't think that's what the district court said at all. Uh, the district court, as I read the court's decision, the district court never discussed the assignability or the sufficiency of the pleading of any fraud or fraud or deceit claims and never tied a conclusion that the legal malpractice claim was unassignable to dismissal of any other claim. So am I wrong on that? Your Honor, the district court kicked out all claims, whether it being fraud, um, you know, legal malpractice, all claims were categorized. Do, do you disagree with me with my view that the statement that you made in your brief just isn't accurate? I don't think it's correct. That's not what the district court did, because what you said is they, they erroneously concluded that if the legal malpractice claim against Harry and his firm failed due to lack of assignability, all claims against those parties failed. That's not what the district court did. I just want to give you a chance to tell me I'm wrong on that. Well, Your Honor, I don't quite understand your question, to be okay. quite honest with you. Well, I just wanted some clarification on, a, on the statement in your brief, and, and if you don't have an answer to that, we'll just go ahead and proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. Your Honors, essentially, I would reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal or any questions of the court. Um, you may. With that, I'll sit down. Thank you, you may. Uh, Mr. Sutton. Thank you, Your Honor. Stay, pause one second while the clerks get seated. Thank you for waiting. Now proceed when you want to. Thank you. May it please the court, counsel. This case asks whether legal malpractice cases should be assignable as a matter of public policy under South Dakota law. The answer is no. And this court should predict that the South Dakota Supreme Court would adopt a bright line rule prohibiting the assignment of malpractice cases. Now admittedly, this is an issue of first impression in South Dakota. What the district court predicted in this diversity case, and what I would submit this court should predict, is that the South Dakota Supreme Court would follow the strong majority rule in cases throughout the country prohibiting assignment of legal malpractice claims. That includes all the sisters in the Eighth Circuit that well, addressed now, it. Your, your opponent mentioned a, an Arkansas case. Is Arkansas different? 
Your Honor, I'm not sure that I'm aware of the Arkansas case that my opponent mentioned. What I recall is in our brief, we walked through the jurisdictions, including in Arkansas, I think it's an Eastern District of Arkansas decision as I'm sitting here. Um, and without the reference to the case, I apologize. I don't think it's different. My research indicated that the sister circuits all followed the same rule. And you're welcome to supplement too by a Rule 28J letter if, if there's a qualification. Thank you, Your Honor. Separately, in addition to the sister circuits, we know the states next to South Dakota, Iowa Supreme Court and Gray versus Oliver in 2020, as well as the Minnesota Court of Appeals in the McDonald case said, we're not going to allow these assignments. We're not going to allow them as a public policy. And, and I would submit that when you take that general rule and you compared it to what the South Dakota Supreme Court has done in a Unruh case, the chiropractic case that you've rest, mentioned, as well as the strict adherence to the privity rule that it has said repeatedly, including as recently in April of 2022, after we submitted our brief in the Gantt-Hort versus Ranshaw case cited by the plaintiffs in the reply brief, so it's there, the Supreme Court has said in South Dakota, the strict privity rule applies. And based upon those two frameworks, I would submit that this court ha should predict that the South Dakota Supreme Court would adopt a bright line rule. Is there another case in the country where an attorney represented, I'm using the word the wrong way, where the attorney went into court claiming to be a lawyer and wasn't qualified under any of the rules that allow lawyers from out of state to practice? Is there any of your cases that have the fact situation that your opponent stresses and stresses and stresses? I'm not sure that exactly similar, Judge Benton, but I think there's misdirection that's occurring in that argument. Right. And here's Before why. you do the misdirection, you've, you've not been able to find a case like this, right? Correct. And I, I would assume, agree with that. And I assume he hasn't either. Now, now you can talk about the misdirection. Thank you. So here's the fallacy. And when you step back, this is a review of a Rule 12b-6 motion. This court has to assume all the allegations and the pleading is true. And even they admit, Attorney Harry is a lawyer. He's a lawyer licensed in North Dakota. He's a lawyer licensed in Minnesota. He's hired by a North Dakota insurance company. He is defending an insured. Now, he's in South Dakota. Did he get admitted properly pro hoc vice? No. Or any other way. Correct. That is correct. But he's a lawyer. I mean, it's not a person off the street. That's the fallacy. And the question becomes whether this court wants to allow that status to jeopardize the other underlying policy considerations. Would the attorney-client privilege not apply because he's not licensed? And the other fallacy that they run into is we hear that this fraudulent conduct, by the way, fraud was never pled. Um, that's clear in the amended complaint. Certainly not pled with particularity, as Judge Erickson pointed out. But this fraudulent conduct is going to go unchecked. That's just not true. The question is, who can bring the claim? That's what they're ignoring. The claim is the client's claim. And what happened procedurally here, Your Honor, after the plaintiffs get the excess verdict, they bring their first malpractice attempt to try and squeeze out and find additional insurance coverage, the estate of Thompson. And, and tragically, you know, Winfield Thompson is killed 13 years ago. And, and we're still here fighting this litigation. And, and when that happened, what we find out is in the first instance, they just sue the lawyers and the insurance company direct. And the district court says, you can't do that. There's no duty to the lawyers. The malpractice claim's gone. Fraud, which was pled, sort of, 
um, is not with particularity and is dismissed. And so undeterred, they go back and they get the assignment and they go back and try and do exactly what the courts say you cannot do. We've got an estate that is effective, effectively judgment-proof. Maybe there's an issue about whether some UIM benefits may be in play. But you know what? We won't levy on that. We won't seek our excess judgment if you assign your malpractice and bad faith case. And here's the other thing they don't want you to know, Your Honors. The malpractice claim was dismissed for failure to state a claim. The other claims, the bad faith claim, continued and was settled, as well as the cross claims by NODAC. Who has the claim? The client and the insurance company, who at least is potentially in a tripartite relationship and a client. So I would submit this parade of horribles that we hear, where lawyers are going to be going around unchecked, misunderstands that that claim exists. It just doesn't exist for these plaintiffs. So we step back. What do we know and what did the district court have? First of all, we've got the A. Unruh decision by the South Dakota Supreme Court. It tells us that although South Dakota generally recognizes freedom of contract, that yields and must yield to the public policy considerations of the state. And as a result, based upon concepts and concerns of maintenance and champerty, similar concerns, which you will find identified by some of the courts cited in our brief in prohibiting assignments, that they are not going to allow an assignment of either one, a personal injury claim, that was actually prior to the A. Unruh decision, two, the proceeds from a personal injury claim, or even three, an equitable interest in those proceeds. Even though there's a general freedom to contract, those assignments are void as a matter of public policy. And I would submit that when you look at South Dakota law, they've recognized two assignments, and two assignments only by the Supreme Court. One, well, excuse me, I, that's a that's an over-characterization. I misspoke. They've, they've recognized two times in which you can assign a claim validly, um, a tort claim at least, one of which is a bad faith claim against the insurance company, the second of which is the Copperman case here, which is not what we have because an insurance agent, frankly, is different than a lawyer because of the policy considerations. So we know that in South Dakota, the ability to assign the claim must yield to the public policy. So then the next question is, what is the public policy as it relates to legal malpractice claims? Because that's the only claim pled here in this complaint. When we look at that, the South Dakota Supreme Court has told us, as recently, like I said, as in this Gantt-Fort case, that it strictly applies the privity rule prohibiting non-clients pursuing for malpractice. There's one exception and one exception only. The Frisky versus Hogan case cited, referenced by my opponent, um, that case recognized that when the lawyer's representation is solely to serve the benefit of an anticipated third party, for instance, drafting a will for the heirs, the heirs can bring the claim. Um, this could not be less that case. There's no more adversarial situation than Mr. Harry's representation of his clients in litigation. Certainly is not serving the estate of Thompson. That's not a third-party beneficiary case. We're in the general rule. Then, importantly, the Supreme Court says this. South Dakota continues to follow the strict privity rule for four policy reasons. This is in footnote nine of that decision. One, preserving, excuse me, preserving the attorney's duty of loyalty to the client as the client's advocate. Two, 
avoiding conflicts of interest. Three, limiting the number of persons a lawyer may be accountable to. And four, maintaining the attorney confidentiality. Now you take those policy rationales and you juxtapose it to the decisions throughout the country that have prohibited assignment of legal malpractice cases and what do you find? They line up all over the place. And now, let me ask you a question because I have not read these cases carefully, as you'll hear. Uh, does the UNRWA case or the Kim Age case, do they even cite Koberman? Koberman's a 97 case, and they're later. The other two are later. You know if they even cite it? My suspicion is that Kim Age does not because it was a different issue, Your Honor. Koberman involved really a statute of limitations and an assignment of a negligent procurement case, whereas Kim Age was... Um, aiding and abetting tortious conduct by a lawyer. Um, as I'm sitting here, I do not remember whether Unruh okay. did. That's one we can check. Yes, yeah. I, I just don't recall. Um, so when you look back at those policy considerations, what you find is those same policy considerations line up in the decisions prohibiting assignments. And I would submit that that's how you know where the South Dakota would, Supreme Court would go if presented this issue. And, and when we peel back the onion, we find that those policy considerations have valid and legitimate concerns. And those concerns cannot be served in a case-by-case -case analysis, as my opponent requests. Counsel, so, the question I have is, should we be finding a way to let the South Dakota Supreme Court decide this issue? We're, we're trying to read tea leaves here, aren't we? Shouldn't they be the one deciding this? Why should we, why should we even go there and predict it? I think that Although this court certainly has the discretion to certify the issue, I don't believe that this case warrants it because the case law is so strong regarding the majority rule throughout the jurisdictions as well as what the South Dakota Supreme Court has said in the privity rule, the eight unruh case, compared to the policy reasons. So the cases you're pointing to that you believe point us to a clear answer from the South Dakota Supreme Court of what they would do or which cases? The UNRWA, uh, the CAMH, anything else? The Gambort versus Ranshaw case. And then how those juxtapose with the policy considerations, Gray versus Oliver in the Iowa Supreme Court, um, Piccadilly versus Rakos, the Indiana Supreme Court, and then the numerous cases we've cited. You shouldn't yeah. leave out Missouri and North Dakota here. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, the, you, uh, what about the... How about oh. Nebraska? Yeah, Nebraska, Nebraska has also yeah. addressed this issue and rejected the assignment. But, but as if you North look Dakota. at it, they've none of. I don't. I haven't been able to find a case where you have a lawyer uh, who is licensed in one state who fails to obtain permission to practice uh, either pro hoc vici or get admitted in another state uh, who litigates for a period of years um, and then is in this position, right? So this is sort of sui generis at that point, right? Now we're looking at the question: is well, let's take a look. With this little carve out here, how does it advance the four policy considerations that are found in footnote nine? Because an argument can be made that, you know, things like duty of loyalty or maintaining the attorney client relationship really have no no bearing on this. They're not in play because this man is not a lawyer. He's just a guy who is is is, you know, stayed at the Holiday Inn Express. Here's why I disagree with that. Conclusion, conclusion, Judge Erickson, I don't think that the lawyer's view is what drives those policy considerations. It's the expectation of the client. And the client is never going to know that Bill Harry was not properly admitted pro hoc vice. 
So if you take that to the logical conclusion, the concerns about invasion of the attorney-client privilege and the confidentiality that have been raised, that's from the client's perspective. It's the client's privilege. The client's expectation that the lawyer is acting in a duty of loyalty and zealously representing me. Again, that's the client. So the bright line rule is needed because the clients need the protection. That's the fallacy here, is they want to say that this is a shield for the lawyer. No, the policies aren't to shield the lawyer. The policies are to make sure that the lawyer's incentives match up for protections of the client. And if they don't, the client can sue them. The client should not be in a position to, and may have a reason to want to, to give up that claim to someone else. And this just begs if this door is opened for gamesmanship. The conflicts of interest that can be created are hugely problematic. And, and there's one simple example to bring it to a head. A settlement offer that comes that says, I offer to settle for X plus assigning the legal malpractice case. At that point, whether meritorious or strategic, we now have a conflict of interest between the lawyer and the client. And that's a huge wedge. And this court should not allow that to happen. At that point, the lawyer probably has an ethical obligation to tell the client to go get another lawyer. Think about the cost of those to the client. Or at clients. least to consult with another lawyer. Fair enough. I mean, certainly to consult. And, and that's a cost that should not be borne by the clients. And that's a policy reason why to prohibit it. So ultimately, Your Honors, when you look back at what South Dakota has done here, and you look at the strong majority rule, I would submit that the district court properly predicted that the South Dakota Supreme Court would not recognize the assignment in this case. We never found a case anywhere in the country that allowed assignments to opposing parties in litigation, which is what we have here. But even beyond that, that the South Dakota Supreme Court would adopt a bright line rule prohibiting assignments of legal malpractice cases in South Dakota. Thank you. Thank you for the argument. Mr. Martinez, you have time available. Thank you, Your Honors. I'll be brief. Your Honors, the public policy conditions that my opponent brings up are addressed in the Utah court as well as in the Massachusetts court. And given that this is a one-off, this is a very, very strange set of circumstances. We wouldn't be here today if William Harry had done one of three things. One, he got admitted pro hoc vicee. Two, he got South Dakota counsel. Or three, he took the bar exam and was admitted to South Dakota. One of three things. Instead, he chose to disregard all of them and show up. Essentially, before the eyes of the law of South Dakota, he is just an individual off the street. And Your Honor, I want to leave you with just one last thing. Allowing this misbehavior and this misconduct to be swept under the rug not only leaves a stain on the profession, but also on the Constitution that we all took an oath to uphold. Thank, thank you, Your Honors. Thank you for the argument, counsel. Case number 22-1058 is submitted for decision by the court. Ms. McKee.